Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Ariana Prail. In a historic change, California's youth prisons will stop taking in new offenders in July. And in 2023, all state juvenile detention facilities will close, with responsibility for youth offenders shifting to counties. The state's youth lockups have long been plagued by scandals and allegations of mistreatment. The move to smaller local facilities is intended to provide a less punitive approach and increase rehabilitation and access to services. But some advocates for youth offenders worry conditions will get worse when counties take control. As counties formulate their plans ahead of the closures, we'll talk about what juvenile justice may look like in California's near future. That's next, after this news. Hello and welcome to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail. As you know, Forum is changing. Mina Kim has been named the host of the statewide 10 to 11 a.m. hour, and we're hoping to bring you lots of voices in this hour as we search for a new host at 9 a.m. I'm with you all this week and with me today to talk about California's plans to close its youth prisons. And what comes next is Renee Menart, communications and policy analyst for the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice. She's co-author of the 2019 report Unmet Promises on California's Division of Juvenile Justice. Welcome to Forum, Hi, thank you for having me. And also joining us is Frankie Guzman, attorney and director of the Youth Justice Initiative at the National Center for Youth Law. Welcome to Forum, Frankie Guzman. And also a note that we did reach out to the Division of Juvenile Justice to be a part of the conversation, but they declined. So last September, Governor Gavin Newsom signed Senate Bill 823 into law that will close California's youth prison system in 2023. And in January, he issued a budget directive pledging $200 million annually to local governments to help with the costs of housing and rehabilitating youth who would be transferred from these prisons. So there's an opportunity in some time, we have a couple years, to potentially create a new system, one that's guided by principles of transformational justice. Uh, But before we dive into what could be and specifically what the shift to counties will mean mean and the potential complications there, I think it would be helpful to understand where we've been on this issue as a state. So Frankie Guzman, let's start with you. You come to this issue with the perspective not only of a lawyer and advocate, but someone who was formerly incarcerated as a youth. And you've been a motivational speaker at these youth facilities as well. You've said that the California Youth Authority has come a long way since you were there in the 90s. Can you share a bit of your story and what we've seen happen in these facilities in the last few decades? Sure. Um, And thank you. Uh, 
for that um, introduction. So you know, I, I just want to make clear, I was in the California Youth Authority from 1996 until about 2004, at pretty much at the height of its uh, notoriety when, when there was a lot of uh, allegations of abuse, neglect, uh, violence, corruption happening in DJJ. And, and I'd just like to share that, you know, the accounts as described in the public and in the media were, were accurate, if, if not even understated to some degree. And so I, I understand firsthand how badly things can go when we overly invest in, in punitive correctional approaches to dealing with young people who by and large come from disadvantaged backgrounds, usually youth of color with long histories of abuse, abandonment and neglect, who really need, deserve and, and require health-based treatment. Um, but instead, you know, I think as a state, we've oftentimes lacked creativity and I would say a commitment to the well-being of these young people and often defer to law enforcement to develop these approaches that would, you know, in quotes, rehabilitate these young people who haven't been habilitated in the first place. And so, you know, I, I want to recognize that DJJ, you know, was sued and rightfully so. And, and over the last, you know, I would say since, you know, the litigation, it took about 10 years to change the culture in DJJ to be health-based, you know, uh, evidence-based and health, you know, health-centered and has come a long way. And, and I continue to engage DJJ as an adult and, and have to recognize their progress. What has remained is the prison-like facilities, the design that is it really undermines the health-based treatment, you know, and, and I, and I, um, what I would describe it as is providing medicine to somebody in a toxic environment. And so while many of us, you know, on the outside have advocated for the closure of, of these youth prisons, we've also advocated for responsible alternatives that would invest in uh, humane environments, you know, home-like environments where health can happen with evidence-based approaches that are rooted in, 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 in science, you know, that promote positive youth development, but also in partnership with community-based providers who I would describe as authentic service providers so that we're not in, in some ways uh, employing the jailer to also be the therapist. Right. And so I, I, I am concerned that as we shut down DJJ um, because of the negative publicity that it's experienced in the last few decades, that will transition to a local system of 58 counties that will essentially utilize many county jails with no evidence-based practices, without the adequate personnel, and without any community input, resulting in a far worse condition than what we're um, you know, abandoning with, with, with the transition away from DJJ. And, and we'll definitely unpack some more of kind of what this shift to counties will mean as the, as the hour goes on. And Renee Menard, I'd like to hear from you on this as well. What's been the evolution of the Division of Juvenile Justice from the policy analyst point of view? And I know that um, Frankie brought up the lawsuit, that's the Feral, law, the feral lawsuit in response to kind of a rash of suicide, staff abuse, sexual abuse of female inmates, staged fights that were happening in the, in the early 2000s. Can you give us a little bit more um, of kind of the policy history here? Certainly. Uh, I'd also like to expand a little bit. You know, I think it's helpful for us to think about the context uh, that DJJ has been existing in. So uh, I'll get to the lawsuit that Frankie mentioned. But to start us off, I think it's important that we think about where our state has been in recent decades mm -hmm. uh, in the juvenile justice system and our approach to it more generally. So, you know, juvenile Criminal justice in California has had a long history with DJJ playing a role in it since uh, the 40s at the name uh, at the time under a different name. 
And, you know, we've had a, a very long history of juvenile justice in the state. Um, but most recently, you know, thinking into uh, 2000, we had at the time this real increase in punitive responses to youth. In 2000, Proposition 21 uh, passed, and that uh, particularly required more youth to be tried as adults, required more youth to be held in correctional or carceral facilities. And this happened at a time when the state was preparing for a quote unquote super predator crime wave that never happened. So DJJ has existed in that context where California was building up its juvenile justice system and overly uh, punishing youth for, uh, for crimes and for their behaviors. Uh, and that continued on, you know, in 2007, when the process of, of juvenile justice realignment uh, kicked into gear, that was the process of uh, closing down a number of DJJ facilities and moving the responsibility to counties. We also saw a continued investment in an overbuilt and outdated juvenile justice system. At the time in 2007, a cumulative $300 million were provided to counties to allow them to construct facilities. And those facilities today are near empty in many places with counties on the verge of shutting those facilities down. Now, we might be asking the reason for that. You know, people must be thinking about uh, what is actually happening with youth crime, with youth arrests, when they're building their responses to it. But in fact, at the same time, while the state was overbuilding, youth crime rates have continued to drop, not only in California, but really across the nation. These overbuilt systems were, as I said, preparing for a crime wave that never came. And in fact, since 2000, we've seen 80% drops in youth arrests. Now, at the, in that same kind of time period, we can zoom in on DJJ and think about what that impact was on the population there. In, at its peak in 1996, DJJ had 10,000 youth. Now, today we have just under 700. This is an over 90% drop to match that 80% drop in youth arrests. And we're seeing this uh, in a way that can really allow us to think more clearly about juvenile justice policy in the future. Because let's be clear, this these changes in youth arrests mean that fewer youth are coming into contact with the juvenile justice system in the first place. It means that youth are not necessarily coming into contact with law enforcement or probation departments. So it means that we need to be investing in whatever is, can be working on the front end, whatever can set youth on the right track in the first place. And that includes high quality education, mentoring, uh, basic necessities and resources for families, and as Frankie said, uh, involvement with community-based organizations that can support youth in a culturally competent uh, and a uh, and a connected way. So, I wanted to zoom out into that lens, but I can certainly dive into some of the history with DJJ specifically as well. Yeah, no, that was that was very very helpful, and I know because that adds greater context too with. And then when the lawsuit happened and that brought in greater um, oversight, right, and, and routine inspections, but that ended in 2016 and we're seeing that some of the issues returned. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. So the lawsuit that we're, we're talking about uh, came about when there were uh, a number of 
issues that were occurring in the 1990s and early 2000s that included um, some of what Frankie mentioned. There were, you know, high profile abuses by staff, uh, violence in the institutions uh, with staff actually setting up what have been called gladiator fights among youth. There was psychotropic drug testing done on youth. There were incidents of youth being held in restraints for prolonged periods of time. And so this lawsuit that was filed and came um, came into being in 2003 uh, was enacted because of this these many issues that put youth in harm's way. And that um, lasted for 12 years. So during the time that this lawsuit was in place, DJJ was under strict court monitoring. And abruptly in early 2016, that court monitoring was lifted. And DJJ in recent years has had uh, a similar issue to what we've seen with counties and we can get to later. Um, it's had a patchwork of oversight. There's really been no consistent uh body that's responsible for overseeing DJJ institutions. And so what we've seen after that lawsuit and after the court monitoring ended were that conditions continued to place youth in harm's way. Their rates of violence in the facilities, use of force by staff, isolation, all of these, uh, these conditions persisted. And in particular, I'd like to share a few things that I think can bring to light what youth have been experiencing in well, DJJ. Well, actually, we're just about years. to come up on a break. And I know, Frankie, um, you could also talk about some of the reforms we've been seeing more recently. So we're going to get to all of that um, when we come back from the break. We're, com- we're talking with Renee Menard, Communications and Policy Analyst for the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice, and Frankie Guzman, Attorney and Director of the Youth Justice Initiative at the National Center for Youth Law. And you, our listeners, have you had experience with California's juvenile justice system? Have you been incarcerated or know someone who has or worked? at the Division of Juvenile Justice, we want to hear from you. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll have more after the break. I'm Ariana Prail. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail. We're talking about the planned closure of California's youth prisons with Frankie Guzman, attorney and director, Youth Justice Initiative at the National Center for Youth Law, and Renee Menard, communications and policy analyst at the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice. She's co-author of the 2019 report, Unmet Promises on Violence and Neglect in California's Division of Juvenile Justice. And so, Frankie Guzman, I wanted to, to bring you into kind of what Renee um, had kicked off before the break. And and get your take on some of the reforms that we've seen more recently. Sure. You know, I, I as I as I listen to Renee talk, and, and I just want to say, you know, I have a tremendous uh, respect and admiration for Renee and, and her organization. 
Um, I, I, you know, I will say that what she's describing is, is true and, and accurate, but I also would like us to like think about DJJ in the context of what's happening now, right? And so as, you know, DJJ was, as I mentioned before, rightfully sued, you know, the, the resulting in massive reforms, court intervention and oversight that took about 10 years to get some type of culture change uh, within that, that division. But we haven't experienced a similar type of intervention and, and oversight over the practices of probation departments. And so while, you know, in, in a way, you know, DJJ has been you know, dragged through the mud and, and exposed for all the harms that they've caused young people, we haven't had that similar type of oversight and accountability against probation departments, largely because state oversight is weak, you know, in, in terms of, you know, the, the, the entity charged with uh, enforcing in investigation standards and, and, and enforcement and the like. But also because we're talking about 58 different systems where DJJ, you can address the, the issue system wide by, by suing the Division of Juvenile Justice. To do that for probation, oftentimes it requires 58 different investigations, 58 different lawsuits, and it's just very costly and, and resource heavy to get to that point. And so, in my opinion, probation has gotten a pass, whereas we've had a lot of people, you know, watchdogging DJJ. And so I, I just want to put things in context where, yes, DJJ did you know their part and were, were in some sense held accountable to some degree that has not happened for djj and you know my office has been uh involved in bringing litigation against probation departments which we can discuss which are beyond the scope i think here but still the idea is we need to pay attention to what is happening at, at the local level and what is known and, and more importantly what is not known about the facilities about the culture about the training and practices that we have because this 58 probation department system is what's going to inherit the DJJ system once it closes finally. And to me, that is a, a much bigger concern than the days, you know, of the past with respect to DJJ. So, yeah, so let's tra- let's use that to transition to talking a little bit spor- more specifically about what these changes um, might look like and what is needed for local counties to, su- to successfully balance youth rehabilitation and community safety and not just kind of replicate the inequity and punishment of the state efforts. And I know Renee Menard and Frankie Guzman, you kind of have some differing kind of points of view when it comes to, you know, the, what could happen with these changes. Renee Menard, you're seeing kind of a real opportunity here for some transformation. Can you speak more about what you're seeing with, with the pending change? I think that a lot of the concerns that will impact the way we move forward with this process of DJJ closure um, are are reflected by myself and colleagues uh, in the same way that Frankie mentioned. So I I certainly don't want to minimize the challenge we have before us. Uh, At the same time, 98% of youth in California's juvenile justice system are already in county probation's care. Only 2% of those youth are at DJJ. So what DJJ closure means to me is that this is an opportunity to really focus on the county systems that truly do need uh, improved oversight, improved conditions, um, and improved approaches that can really benefit all youth in the system. So I, I really do look at the DJJ closure as a first step you know, it's a critical step, but we do have a long road ahead of us to ensure that youth, when supported locally, are done so in a way that isn't just replicating those harms of the state system. We've seen at the state level issues with suicidality, even since that lawsuit ended, attempts uh, or 
you know, attempts and other suicidal behaviors have doubled in the three years since that lawsuit ended. We've seen programs that are ineffective in a prison-like setting and that are offered to few youth. And we've seen an education system in DJJ that had zero youth who were proficient in math and only 8% who were proficient in language arts in a recent school year. So these are all issues that we, I think, at the county level need to certainly address, recognizing that counties do have different ways of, of um, managing youth locally, of serving youth locally. And they've also had a very different reliance on the state system. So I think some counties are at an advantage. You've got San Francisco, San Mateo, and Marin counties that all send youth to DJJ at a rate lower than the state average. But then you have other counties, you know, some like Riverside and Monterey that have continuously sent youth to DJJ. Uh, and most recently, their rates were at nearly three times the statewide average. So this is an opportunity for us to really address the needs of youth on a local and individualized basis, while also recognizing some counties are certainly going to need more support and oversight from the state to ensure that they do so effectively and ethically. And Frankie Guzman, we have a tweet from Michael who says, what happened to the notion of reform school, where the juvenile justice system would be focused on rehabilitation and learning life skills for success? I don't think California's many rural counties will have the resources to help kids become decent citizens. Um, I think what Michael is kind of bringing up at the end is is part of your concern in terms of kind of what a patchwork approach of different counties and, and local control could bring. Could you expound a little bit more? I know you've touched on it before, but just more about your what some of your biggest concerns are? Sure. And I just want to address Michael's question directly. You know, this idea of reform school, while sounds good, you know, I think we need to be a little more um, cautious about things that sound good in name because, you know, politics prevails and framing is often very influential. And so the idea of a reform school has, you know, is a thing of the past. You know, what really, I was in a reform school for, for six years and these are big congregate care facilities, you know, prison-like environments. And yes, they have machine shop and welding and other types of trades, but they also have guards with guns, um, you know, what they call non-lethal, but are still very lethal, you know, pepper sprays, batons and, you know, and towers and shackles and all these things. And so reform schools died out with high recidivism rates and, and huge violence. And so we've abandoned that in favor of what we know to be more effective, which is smaller facilities, home-like environments with the therapeutic treatments um, in, in, in communities where these kids come from or where they have access to community-based services, whether it's health, education, or other types of resources. Um, and so the, the idea of reform school was something of the 1940s through the 1980s and more recently has gotten us into a lot of trouble because they're just hard to manage and are frankly not effective or developmentally appropriate for the, the, the type of young people with the needs that they have um, currently at DJJ. And so, you know, um, so, so I want to say that the, the concerns that I have are this. I, I understand firsthand that there are far worse things for young people than DJJ, like adult prosecution, like 25 years to life or more on a level four maximum security prison yard. And that threat is very real. Until very recently, California was prosecuting an average of about a thousand young people as adults each year. And these, again, were from counties that were over-reliant on the state system. These counties that you see prosecuting young people as adults at high rates have also historically sent kids to DJJ at high rates. And, and, and bringing us back to my earlier point is oftentimes it has been the probation department that has recommended DJJ or adult transfer in cases involving young people that probation does not want to serve. 
does not have the will, the expertise, or the desire to serve these young people. And so now the the, the plan from from you know our our our, our leaders or our leader in, in in the governor's office is is proposing to send these very same kids back to the counties and 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 in charge of or rather putting in charge of their care probation officers at a time when first the, the governor gave a lot of lip service to moving towards a health-based approach, realigning DJJ within HHS, changing the juvenile justice system as we know it, re- acknowledging and recognizing that the criminal justice system is, 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 is racist, and in the same year does a 180, and, oh, also in the backdrop, uh, you know, police brutality and violence, you know, murders of innocent black and brown people at the hands of, of law enforcement, he then decides that we're going to send these kids back to, to the counties with no state oversight, no, you know, I would say no real court uh, intervention, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And that scares me because first, if judges do not believe that county probation departments can handle these kids adequately, they might decide in favor of transferring these kids to the adult system, going back to sending more black and brown kids to the adult system. For those kids who are lucky enough to, and I say lucky enough facetiously, to, to remain in the local juvenile justice system, the, the chances are they're going to be warehoused for many years, as much as 11 years, if you take an 11, a 14-year-old who committed, say, murder, um, in a juvenile hall that is not designed for long-term treatment, with no evidence-based services, with no trained personnel, and no community input or, 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 or service provision. Um, and, and that's what scares me. So either A, you know, I, I will just say, in, 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 you know, to, to, to end, this is, in my mind, an opportunity, obviously, to do things better. But the reality is that this is no like benign opportunity. This is a a potential for a human rights catastrophe. We will send kids back to the counties where they will be abused, where they will be underserved. Courts will will, will fall out of I, I I would say well maybe just fall out of favor or or decide that the that the county can no longer serve these kids. And in the end, we end up prosecuting more kids as adults, increasing recidivism, increasing you know crime, and more victimization all at a time when California has been a leader in abolishing life without parole for juveniles, establishing youth offender parole hearings for, for young people, prosecutors, adults, uh, abolishing direct file, meaning prosecutors' power to charge kids as adults, and reducing transfers to the adult system from a height of 1,200 in a year in 2008 to a low of 64 in 2019. So we have made tremendous gains in terms of reforms, moving towards health-based approaches and, and developmentally appropriate approaches to young people who commit the serious crimes. And in my view, SBA 23 is, has the potential to undo all that while strengthening and, and doubling down on the failed approaches that are corrections-minded, punitive, and, and largely driven by law enforcement without any input of community and health-based professionals. And it is interesting to note uh, the L.A. Times reported that organizations representing counties and chief probation officers opposed SB 823. Um, They did. Renee, I'll go to what is what are you seeing so far that gives you optimism that the localities will set up better systems? I think it's too soon to say. I, I, I truly do think that. Um, at this point, we are seeing some practices that are beneficial at the county level. <clears throat> um, and we are seeing uh, some counties that are at an advantage because in the decades preceding this shift, they've invested in local uh, placements for youth, um, especially for youth who have higher needs and who would otherwise end up at DJJ. Um, but 
at this point, I really can't point to a, a county and say, you've got it, we're good to go. I think, um, you know, uh, what Frankie has shared is are, is valid. We do need to continue to engage with counties um, and the state needs to continue to engage with counties and provide substantial oversight, not only over the process, but over the, the systems as they continue on in the future. What I will say, you know, if we, it, for, for some points of optimism and some models for counties to consider when ease, thinking about how to ease this transition, you know, San Francisco is, uh, of course, uh, just one county of many. And I can't say that our landscape is um, the same across all of California's 58 counties. But something that has been particularly uh, beneficial for young people and their families in this transition has been San Francisco's foresight. So currently, all but one San Francisco youth are actually home from DJJ. They've either had a family placement or a community placement with reentry supports. Um, and these youth are able to come home from DJJ because county um, uh, folks in the county have been pushing to recall their cases. So these youth didn't just come home because their, their cases ended, but because uh, our our county actors, including community-based organizations, have worked tirelessly to bring those cases home, to recognize that the conditions at DJJ have worsened amid the COVID-19 pandemic, the lack of programming uh, that the youth are experiencing there, and the increased isolation that they're experiencing are needing to be addressed and can't be addressed in the DJJ context. So, counties can do the same thing as San Francisco. In fact, probation departments can do the same thing. They can choose to recall youth cases. And so the reason why this is, is beneficial and important when possible is because we then give ourselves an opportunity to not wait until the very last day that DJJ is open. We give ourselves an opportunity to be building up the systems locally now that can support youth. And as I mentioned, the, the placement for youth coming home was not juvenile hall. It was not an incarcerative setting. It's really supporting those youth in the community when possible. And, and our focus moving forward needs to be um, making sure that there are viable, secure options for youth, as well as a, an expansion of the community-based options. Because in, in counties beyond San Francisco, we've seen major declines in the juvenile justice population being served. And in fact, we can continue to see a shift in focus. Um, in local facilities, in even before the pandemic, nearly a quarter of youth were there for misdemeanors and 40, just around 40% were being held predisposition. So that was before any formal uh, decision in their case. And so um, what that means is that we can continue to move youth into a community setting on the lower end, which would allow the counties to invest more resources and effort into youth who are, who are coming home from DJJ. And I do think it's very important that counties uh, in San Francisco and beyond be considering community-based stakeholders as collaborators in the process and that the local systems be recognized as a, an entire continuum of care is what it's called. You have community-based service providers as well as uh, these secure facilities. And oftentimes that can be a collaboration too. So uh, I think that collaboration really is key as we move forward. We've seen some counties can begin on that road and others that really need to, um, 
to open their doors to a transparent process. So we just have a couple minutes um, before our next break, uh, but want to get some reaction to what Wallace writes. What's going to happen to serious offenders? I think that's a little bit of the extension of this conversation of what's next. Frankie Guzman? Sure. Well, um, it's anybody's guess at, at this point. And, and, you know, I think that it'll largely vary county by county. So, for example, there are uh, a number of counties uh, where they are forward thinking and beginning to plan with significant community input around what to do with these young people, recognizing that the offense should not drive the punishment, meaning um, just because a young person commits murder doesn't mean that the young person should require, you know, 10 years in, 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 in incarceration. I think, you know, I have, I've had many conversations with DJJ, you know, the, the, the administration, as well as many probation chiefs who have experienced with these young people who recognize oftentimes the young people who commit murder, it was a one-off crime and are the least likely to commit another crime again. But I think that politics oftentimes prevails and, and people demand an eye for an eye and, 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 and the, the crime is often equated with, you know, the, the punishment as opposed to the therapeutic response, right? And so in some counties, you might see young people who are charged with more serious offenses being transferred to the adult system in greater numbers uh, you know, because of this idea that a serious crime deserves adult time, whereas in other counties, they might respond more appropriately and investing in developmentally appropriate services that really address in, in a tailored way the underlying issues that that cause the, the, the crime to occur in the first place. And, and so and we're about to come on the break, but we'll be able to talk about some more of those when we come back. We're talking about the planned closure of California's youth prisons with Frankie Guzman, attorney and director, Youth Justice Initiative at the National Center for Youth Law and Renee Menard, communications and policy analyst at the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice. And you are listeners, 866-733-6786. Weigh in or email us at forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Ariana Prail. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail, and we're talking about the planned closure of California's youth prisons. I'm joined by Frankie Guzman, attorney and director at the Youth Justice Initiative at the National Center for Youth Law, and Renee Menard, communications and policy analyst on the center at the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice. And we're also joined now by Kent Mendoza, manager of advocacy and community organizing the Anti-Recidivism Coalition. And he was released from the Division of Juvenile Justice in 2014. Uh, Kent Mendoza, welcome to Forum. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good morning. And and so we are kind of starting to shift gears to kind of look ahead to kind of what some of these um, potential reforms could look like, the opportunities there. And so from your experience in DJJ, Kent, how how do you feel about the closure? I personally, from a personal stance, I feel, uh, you know, really amazed to see that we've gotten to this point. Uh, unfortunately, it sucks that it has happened during COVID-19, but uh, I'm just excited for 
the the future of our young people who unfortunately you know sometimes you know they struggle in in their life and make choices that put them in these scenarios and i just hope that you know i'm glad that we are trying to get to a different uh, approach of how we're doing this and you know it's important and it's crucial and uh, you know, as someone that they spend time in this system, you know, it's it's personal. It's a personal issue for me. So it's just a it's a really uh, promising future for for the next generation that uh, it's going to come for us. That's going to be the future of, of this uh, this um, state. And you've been involved with some of L.A. County's plans. Can you briefly just touch on 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 some of those that you're energized about? Yes. Yeah, so I've been fortunate to, you know, I've been working for the past seven years on just justice issues in general. But in L.A. County, uh, L.A. County has, you know, was a little bit ahead of the state when it comes in terms of uh, realignment. Uh, the county had already moved county motions to to establish a work group to develop a plan for the DJJ uh, alternative in the local level. Uh, the county, L.A. County hired the Burns Institute, which is a, uh, it's in Oakland, based out of Oakland, uh, California, to conduct a, basically this facilitate work groups for a period of almost a year, last year, and basically come up with a report that lays out a potential plan and visionary blueprint to how LA County, considering everything, right, budget, feasibility, and just everything, uh, how can LA County successfully create an alternative to DJJ at the local level? Uh, on top of that, LA County had already established a report laying out how they could move all of its youth under the probation department into a new model. So everything was part of a youth justice reimagined model. Uh, so what they did, they hired that Burns Institute. And the, the main thing that the Burns Institute decided to do in the beginning, before beginning these minutes and beginning engaging with stakeholders from different perspectives, from prosecutors to probation to uh, CBOs and you know impacted individuals, uh, they wanted to make sure that they had people in their team that were impacted and not only impacted, but really understood these issues and really kept it grassroots. So they actually hired me as a consultant, along with four other community people from L.A. County. And I think that that was a big difference because, you know, as someone that was in DJJ myself and who works on these issues, you know, throughout the whole entire facilitation of these work groups, we were able to engage young people. You know, I was able to engage a lot of young individuals that were in DJJ and who were currently in DJJ to really learn about what works and what doesn't work right. about DJJ. What are some of the components that are crucial and essential for, for, for a new model to have in order for us to address the issues that all of our young people are experiencing? And so that's what we did. And uh, and we and we can we that the Burns Institute came out with a report laying out a visionary. Uh, plan on how LA County can do this, uh, and and so yeah, so that's uh, what 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 happens in LA County. We're a little bit ahead of uh, the state, but like I said, there's still some uh, barriers that we have to maneuver. But overall, it was literally just centering the voices of the people that really have been in these situations, yeah. allowing us to be the leaders in these work groups, and then really creating that space that ultimately. Uh, gave us all these ideas that, you know, that can take us into a new model where we don't focus on just uh, punishing a youth by putting him in him or her in a cell for months or years, but actually creating an environment where there's resources like counselors, teachers, credible messengers and mentors that can really work with them through their, you know, behaviors and whatever they need to be addressing during the time they're there. So it's well, not just about time, but it's about really 
working in the root causes of this youth. So yeah, yeah that's where well, we're at. Well, I'm glad that your your voice is at the table. That is something that I've been seeing, you know, op-eds about in terms of saying, you know, this is an opportunity for having those who've been involved in the system be a part of the change. And and so knowing you're at the table and kind of advancing, um, putting your voice out there for LA County is, is great to hear. So thank you for, for joining us and sharing your, your perspective. Kent Mendoza, Manager of Advocacy and Community Organizing with the Anti-Recidivism Coalition. Thanks for joining Forum. Thank you. And now let's turn to caller Phil in South San Francisco. Phil, you're on. Hey, I've been great listening to you guys and so um, encouraged by your your progress uh, that you've been talking about. So, and just thinking about it, um, well, just to tell you where I'm coming from, uh, I was arrested at the age of 14, and I was very lucky. (laughs) I went to a camp. Uh, excuse me, I get emotional thinking about it. But anyway, I ended up going to a camp called Joe Scott, and when I got out of that camp eight months later, after escaping once and being sent back, um, I was ahead of my class. I I rejoined my class at Bellflower High School, and I was ahead in every subject. And so the camp was a great experience, and so at that time, you made your own time, and you had to write an essay on why you got there and how you were going to change it. So it was a great program. And uh, like I said, uh, academically, it was wonderful. Later on, I worked uh, for L.A. County as a substitute teacher, and so I worked in every camp, including the one I graduated from. I worked in all the special ed schools, everywhere in L.A. County. I never refused a job. But I only worked two days a week, and that's about all I could handle. Um, I just think it's so emotional thinking about it, but I have to say, L.A. County is... I ended up being a special ed teacher uh, for 15 years, and so my proposal, after listening to you guys... Go ahead on with their community collaboration and use special education as a model for uh, setting up a community centers. And I'm just thinking off the top of my head, but uh, uh, these, these folks are socially disabled, and they should be considered as a disability, and they should have an IEP, and, uh, you know, they should have a, a worker that they could call on help them through the process of, of being habilitated. Well, thank you for, for sharing your, your story, Phil, and and for your thoughts. Renee Menard, do you have any thoughts or reaction to, to what Phil shared, his suggestion? I appreciate, Phil, you know, you sharing your, uh, your experience and how uh, certain elements of, of it were able to benefit you. I, I understand why um, it's something that continues to be on your heart and and in your role as a substitute teacher. I, you know, I think that there's certainly a need for uh, uh, stronger rehabilitative uh, services inside of of facilities and in the community. You know, there's, and education is a key part of that. A lot of youth who are in the justice system also struggle with, with special education needs and could certainly benefit from having more individualized care in an education space. They also can benefit from a more individualized care approach in general. 
not every young person who goes into the justice system is going to have the same uh, the same needs. And our current system, uh, as it's been generally run by probation departments and at the state level, has been a very impersonal approach that oftentimes uh, takes on a more um, supervisory role to young people waiting for them to fail rather than helping them thrive. So I, I certainly agree. And something I'd like to lift up um, as we consider the future of juvenile justice in California is the fact that we need some concurrent reforms. You know, we are addressing the higher needs youth uh, as DJJ is on the, the precipice of closure. And we also need to limit intervention of youth who are on um, the, the quote unquote lower end of the system. Uh, one key example of that is a, a continuous state grant called the Juvenile Justice Crime Prevention Act. And this grant is one that has for 20 years provided hundreds of millions of dollars to counties. Uh, in the most recent years, 160 million. And unfortunately, these funds have not gone to the kinds of services that Phil mentioned. Um, so there are legislative efforts in the mix this year trying to improve the use of state funding that can other rather than going to probation and law enforcement staffing and personnel amid dropping youth populations in the juvenile justice system, it can go to resources like education, after school programs, and diversion opportunities for youth. Well, this listener writes, last year, over the course of two weeks, a 15-year-old neighborhood boy stole a car, committed two robberies with a gun stolen in a home burglary, and beat up and stole marijuana from a local dealer. He spent four months in County Juvenile Hall and was released in January. Last week, he stole another call, car, committed a burglary, and another robbery. The public is at risk. Where do you suggest placing this teenager? Frankie Guzman, what are your thoughts? Sure. I, I love hearing um, <laughs> those types of questions. And, and at first, I just want to say it is a poor practice to develop policy around, you know, these these more extreme sensational cases. Um, and I'll just say that. And I'm not suggesting this person is saying that, but we often do do that. We hold up the more extreme case and say, what now? Right. And so right. what I can say is what we know for sure, overwhelming evidence, decades of research demonstrates that the more we involve a young person in the system, the worse off they become. Two people that are arrested for armed robbery, let's say, one is serving the community, the other is committed to some confinement time. The person serving the community will fare much better, will is le less likely to, to commit another crime and recidivate. Meanwhile, the other does the opposite. And, and that is true in, in, in my life. I, what I would say to that is I would imagine that four months in juvenile hall in a draconian environment, with no developmentally appropriate services, did a lot of harm to this young person, so that once he or she was released, that person was probably in a, in a, in a, in a kind of a degraded state, mental health-wise and otherwise. Had that person been dealt with in a more appropriate way, you know, being held, while being held accountable through some restorative justice programming, you know, I'll say this, when I was a young kid, I was extremely impulsive, and I did a lot of things that were short-sighted, just because I was curious about what would happen, that oftentimes caused a lot of people a lot of harm. Every time I was arrested and sent to juvenile hall or back to DJJ, all it did was deny me the opportunity to learn about the impact that I had on my victims, these crime survivors. So I never really understood or internalized the lesson that was, this has real human uh, impact on human beings. All I was able to understand was my own pain, the pain that I was subjected to by being incarcerated in a six by nine cell you know, overseen by corrections officers that were very quick to abuse us, 
psychologically, physically, emotionally, and otherwise. And when I got out, I got out much worse than when I went in. And that is exactly what we're trying to prevent here. When young people do things that harm other people, we should do things that are developmentally appropriate, that help them learn from their mistakes in a very humane way with the understanding that all evidence, science, if we, if we believe in science, shows that therapeutic programs, you know, restorative justice programs help and, uh, correct the harm and help the young person develop in a much more healthy way than would a jail cell with corrections approaches for significant amounts of time which is why we have high recidivism rates the way we do with county probation programs and DJJ and, and, and adult prisons. And so we need to divest from that. But, but the truth is working with young people at their level requires adults to have a certain level of humility, a certain level of creativity and accountability for our own failures. Because when we do things wrong and, and, and recidivism increases, we blame the child. We do not blame ourselves. And so we double down. And, and, and that is exactly what I think this conversation is about, is not continuing to do the same things that we've always done. You know, removing a young person from a, a, a rural congregate care facility, DJJ, and putting them in a dungeon in their own backyard and calling that evidence based because it's, it's, I think, disrespectful to people who know better and it's harmful to the young people who are subjected to that treatment. And, and just to be clear, I- because what you're saying, it's not that there shouldn't be consequences for people who, you know, for young people who commit crimes in that way, but it's just that there needs to be that more care-based approach that is really taking into consideration where this came from and have an actual interest in in rectifying the situation and not just punishing and and thinking that the punishment is going to to be enough to deter kind of future, you know, criminal behavior, for example. That's correct. And and so I do want to like one of the biggest questions that I have is when the culture of fear that's been termed a lot in in coverage of this issue is so steeped, you know, in this environment with with the staff that are involved as well. You know, how do you retrain staff who have been in this type of environment, um, you know, and and maybe have a punitive mentality? Not saying that's everybody, of course, um, but for those who've been in that mentality for so long to kind of follow a cares based approach. Um, in the recent L.A. Times story, they quoted a teacher inside DJJ who said, quote, that place has got a twisted culture and climate. It's deep. It's baked in. So it's very, very difficult to change. Renee Menard, your your thoughts on on that. And we just have a couple minutes. Renee, are you there? Oh, well, Frankie, do you have what's what's your response to just knowing that sure. when the culture is just so, so deeply baked in? Well, you know, I, I see two options here. It's it's either A, we expect corrections folks, probation included, not just DJJ, to, to change their culture. And I don't think that training is going to be sufficient to do that. It requires a massive change in their philosophy, right? If your primary tool is coercion and control and punishment, then you are going to fail and no amount of training will, will correct that. Which is, you know, so so the option is, you know, get probation and, and, and corrections to change their philosophical, you know, position and, and approaches, or we as, you know, decision makers of, you know, we decide what our system will be, choose to invest in something different, which is really where I think the governor began to, to, to speak in terms of, the legislature and the community have really been, you know, very outspoken about this. We want health-based approaches. And so in, in, in my view, I think we need to not put the warden in charge of healthcare and education, but rather 
education folks should be at the table and have a similar standing and you know situational like our positioning um and we should not be deferring to law enforcement about the the the, the best treatment approaches we should leave that to doctors and therapists and so what i'm saying is rather than 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 asking a cheetah to change its spots let's invest in a different approach and put different decision makers at the at the head of the table that are that are most appropriate to make those decisions because otherwise what we have is is a system where law enforcement which is you know very i would say coercive in, in, in nature keeps the money keeps control allows only certain people that they believe in uh, according to their own philosophy to have access to these young people and and we're just all scratching our heads about why isn't the system working when instead what we should be doing is putting you know people that are that are experts in public health and, and adolescent development education and and, and trauma-informed services in, in leadership positions and have a, a role to play for probation and corrections that is more security in nature but i yeah. don't believe that training of probation or, or or you know corrections officers will somehow change the game what we need to do is enlist the support of social workers and, and other treatment personnel well thank you both uh, to frankie guzman attorney and director youth justice initiative at the national center for youth law and renee menard communications and policy analyst at the center on juvenile and criminal justice and to judy campbell who produced today's segment You've been listening to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.